on a very hot day last week, I went to visit my friend Brian McDonald in his office, which overlooks 15th Avenue. I went over there with the intent of talking to him for 45 minutes or an hour, and this happens most every time I run into Brian. We talk much longer than I ever plan on. So we were st- we were talking for over three hours, and I've cut cut it down, and I've cut about a half hour out of it, but I can't seem to make it much shorter without cutting out parts that we refer to later on in the interview. So here's the piece in total. Um, it's not for everybody. It's a bit long. We touch on dyslexia, storytelling, gentrification as colonization, and what's happening in our neighborhood since we both have been on Capitol Hill for many, many, many years. Uh, Brian is a writer and a friend, and I've known I've known Brian since I was 16 years old. He was the friend of a high school boyfriend, and the boyfriend was a dud, but Brian was a keeper. So Brian and I have maintained a friendship to this day, and I won't even tell you how long that is. He has written several books on story structure, which you can buy on Amazon. I'll throw the links up in the description of this podcast. In the conversation, we cover uh, his dyslexia and how that has impacted his writing and outlook. We discuss uh, the gentrification of our neighborhood and his theories on gentrification as colonization, which are fascinating, and race gender, uh, sexism, (laughs) all of our problems. But race is a major issue, definitely. We always talk about that. Talk about that a lot. And he always enlightens me every single time. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Next stop, Capitol Hill Station. Can I get a deluxe prize? A medium coke and two ketchups, please. Deluxe dry medium coke and two ketchups. Crossing Broadway. Block sign is on. Crossing Broadway. The reason I wanted to talk to you, as I was talking to Sarah Cahoon last last week, mm-hmm. and the interview went in a lot of directions, but she ended up talking about her dyslexia, mm-hmm. and I found that to be an interesting topic, and that made me want to talk to my other friends that have dyslexia. And the other thing that's kind of nice that brings it all together is the three people I know with dyslexia also know each other. So yeah, that is interesting. My podcast is about connections. It's called struggle to connect because I have a hard time connecting sometimes. And also when I don't know what to do with myself Mm because I can't work right now, Mm -hmm. I get my bag and I go talk to people. Sure. Because that's the healthy way I'm trying to deal with my feelings versus like drinking myself into a blackout. Sure. You know, there's something interesting about about doing this as a sort of coping mechanism and about doing something creative and just talking to people because that's so much of what it is and has always been to be an artist is to go places and hang out at a coffee shop or a pub uh-huh. and like spend a lot of time just talking to people and just hanging out um, and eventually art gets created but it's interesting how artists spend a lot of time doing just what you're doing they haven't always recorded it that would have been great yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. but right. Uh, you know in the 20s or whatever in paris but um but it is something that that we all seem to do or most of us many of us and it, it has this restorative thing for me because when i have a good conversation with one of my close friends i feel 
buoyed up. Sometimes I, I'm in a space where I can't connect. I, I can't connect at all, and that it's so awful. You know, the other thing that I talked to Sarah about, and I want to touch on with you as well, is, you know, I had a very bad year last year, and then I had my stint in the hospital, and right. you visited me several times in the hospital, and. It was just so neat that you were close enough and you just walk over and we would have these amazing conversations in an environment where I was stripped away of, of everything. Sure. And extremely vulnerable mm-hmm. and just got to, to talk to a friend. Right. And yeah. way of showing it, but some people get down on themselves when somebody's, they get down on themselves like, I didn't do this and I didn't do that oh, when right. they were sick or right. when they, but it's really just about the connection. Yeah, and when uh, my friend Scott died, um, I would go visit his father. Mm-hmm. His father, you know, growing up, his father was just his father, and then you know, I saw him, you know, when I came over. Hey, how's it going? And I, you know, we went up to Scott's room and read comics. But, but when Scott died, um, and I visited his father, um, I did find myself sometimes feeling guilty on days when I wouldn't visit him. Um, and a lot of that was, and I, I have beat myself up over it, but a lot of it was an interesting emotional toll that it took on me to go see him. Right. Right? And so it's like, well, I can't really beat myself self up over that, right? I became sort of a semi-surrogate son for him. Right. And that felt like a lot of responsibility, right? And so I would simultaneously feel like I should go see him and then pull back and not go and feel guilty that I didn't go for my own reasons. You can only charge somebody's batteries if you have some juice. Right, it's true. And you didn't have any. And also, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. Right. Before you assist others. It's true. And so if you do things motivated out of guilt, like I wouldn't have wanted, and I'm sure you wouldn't want or nobody would want, somebody to visit them when they didn't want to do it. No. Out of some sort <laughs> no. of like, oh, you're here out of your obligation. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, nobody wants it, that. Just in that particular time in my life, just the different ways that people in my life showed support. Mm-hmm. And some of them had to, you know, do, in quotes, very little. And right. I, oh, and I, it's just, it, it, however you make the connection. Yeah. But back to dyslexia. Mm-hmm. So you're a writer. And I was just talking to Paul, my brother-in-law, Paul. Mm-hmm on the way here and his brother has dyslexia right. so i was asking him how it it manifested because it's a very it's one of those things that it it can it can manifest in many different ways yeah it's confusing yeah. to the, the layman because we think oh you see a letter backwards right but that's my sister jenny was saying no i had to put a ruler like underneath the sentence so that my eyes wouldn't look at other yeah words. yeah yeah it, does is yours yeah. kind of like that yeah well, there's a, there's a, I mean, we can talk a little bit about what, what one of the things, one of the things about dyslexia is you're, you tend to be a big picture person. You see the big picture. Details get lost. So people start talking to me about details. I can't, actually can't even hear them at a certain point. Um, but the big picture I completely understand. And the big picture then allows you to see certain patterns that may be lost on people who are looking at details. And so it makes sense that you can't concentrate on a page without looking around because you're looking at the big literally looking at the big picture there well paul was saying that they think it might be an evolutionary thing where if you're hunting say yeah instead of looking in the middle you're looking at the edges right and there, so there are a lot of there are, yeah there are a lot of 
real advantages to dyslexia that they keep discovering. And if you think about a pre-literate society, dyslexia would never show up as a disability or a Right, it would never show up. Oh, right. It only shows up in this thing that we've invented called reading and writing, and then we call it a disability, but it's a completely invented thing. Right, <laughs> right. which it, kind of makes sense because you're a storyteller. Right. And you see the big picture when it comes to, maybe, uh, that's, that's really fascinating because you're known and have written three books about storytelling mm-hmm. and are renowned in this area, yet you, know, you struggle with spelling, which right. is right. now thankfully irrelevant. Right, it is thankfully irrelevant yeah but it's yeah it's interesting that a lot of intelligence gets placed on good spellers you know if you have dyslexia spelling bees just make you feel like a complete loser as a kid and there's nothing you could you can't study harder and get better your brain works a certain way right and their brains work a certain way and that's great if you can spell and win the spelling bee that's great that you your brain works that way but it's not a sign of of raw intelligence right i mean if you look at the list of people who or dyslexic, it's a crazy list. So it Einstein's on the list. Oh, Einstein, hmm. Einstein, dyslexic. Leonardo da Vinci, mm-hmm. dyslexic. Walt Disney, dyslexic. Thomas Edison, dyslexic. Wow. John Lennon, dyslexic. Like, right? How yeah. how can how if you look at that list, it's hard to imagine. Muhammad Ali just died. He was dyslexic. How can you look at this list? and think it has something to do with intelligence or lack of intelligence, right? Right. There is a certain way all of those people saw the world, mm-hmm. That and Steve Jobs, that changed the world. It's funny, because you know I'm a Beatles maniac. Right. When you mentioned John Lennon, one of the things, Paul was very meticulous about, he could play instruments very well. Mm-hmm. John Lennon wasn't that great at playing instruments, he just got the broad strokes. Right. And he made he would call Paul a technician, right? And so, that's kind of on the macro level. He's getting the the song written, right? He's not worrying about being right. really persnickety on the guitar, right? Right, exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. So that would kind of fall in line with what you're saying. Yeah, and huh. so there's a there's a there's a strength, and they're now they're sort of rethinking how they've thought about dyslexia before. Mm-hmm. And now they're saying, oh, there seems to be a trade-off. You can't do this, but you do this other thing better than most people are able to do it. And so I think if we learn how to utilize everybody's brain and how those brains work, we will get a better thing in the end. So John and Paul writing together, mm-hmm. one dyslexic, one not, I mean, that's that's amazing what they did, right? Right. Using two different ways of processing information. Right. You know, also was talking to about um, self-esteem. Like when mm-hmm. you're a kid, you have these, there's leftover crap all over. I mean, I know with my sister Jenny, it's just a minefield of like self-esteem bombs. Yeah. From not being able to read as fast as everybody else. Right. Or, or whatever. Yeah, I get it. And talk about macro, how smart is Jenny? Right, I know. Well, intelligence tests are not made by dyslexics. Right. Or you would have different right, measurements of <laughs> intelligence. How but, does yours manifest? I mean, I know sp- spelling, spelling that we talked spell. about. Mm-hmm. I have uh, I can spell a little bit better as I got older and as uh, computers corrected me. Right. I started to learn, oh, oh, that's how you spell that, not this, not that. So actually, I was such a bad speller when I was younger that when computers first started and there was spell check, 
it would sometimes say I had spelled everything correctly and I wouldn't believe it. I would misspell something to see if it was working properly. Because you were so shocked. I was so, like, no, I'm a bad speller. This page cannot have, <laughs> no, like something's, it's broken. <laughs> yeah. And so I would misspell something on purpose to, just, just to make sure that the thing was working. And my handwriting is, is, is bad, um, which is uh, one of the, the things that uh, a lot of dyslexics have bad handwriting. The interesting thing about my handwriting is it may have been bad anyway, mm -hmm. but it got purposely bad. Um, I remember as a kid as a strategy because spelling was always a big deal, right? Nobody really cared about content. Content was my big thing because I'm dyslexic, right? Right. But teachers care very little about content and a lot about where the commas went and did you spell that right? Did you spell this correctly? Right. So when I was handwriting, when I was writing in uh, cursive, I would blend letters together to sort of hide misspellings and learn how to write in a sloppy way to sort of hide. Uh, so that was a sort of subterfuge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was just sort of, and so now my handwriting sucks, but, but, uh, it may have anyway, it may have sucked anyway. I don't know, but I know that there at one point it was a strategy I had as a huh. kid. All Vanderbecks have bad handwriting. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. Katie's, oh my God. She made fun of my handwriting. Katie made she fun of my... She has no right. <laughs> and then they tell me, my own sisters tell me, that my handwriting looks like I have Down syndrome. She, guess what Katie said to me about that, my handwriting? She said it to both of us. <laughs> She's a terrible person. She's a bad person. Oh, She's an awful God. human being. So the spelling and then what, what about reading are you a slow reader fast reader i read slowly mm -hmm. um uh and it's that's a really difficult thing being a writing teacher because mm -hmm. people are asking me to read things all the time like oh will you read my screenplay right but it's as if they had asked me to read five screenplays like that's kind of the way they have to think about it like you just asked me to read five screenplays right right um and sometimes it's so hard to explain to people that i just i just power through it but there's, a, there's an interesting trait about dyslexics, which is if I am very interested in something, I can read it no problem. Right. But if I am not interested, I can't just read. You know, people would say to me, you should read this book. You know, uh, oh, it's kind of slow for the first hundred pages or something. Right. I'm like, I can't read a hundred pages. I know that people say that to me about certain books. And yeah. it's like, I, I, I too, I'm, I'm a slow reader. Yeah. And... I have some of the classically, in quotes, smart things, because right. I know I'm good at math. You're good and, at math, yeah. But I'm a slow reader, and I'm all over the place, but that's the same thing, like, oh, it's gonna take you a few chapters. It's like, I, I'm sorry, there's right. no way I'm gonna be able to read that book then. From my perspective, as a writing, as a storyteller and a, and a writing teacher, if you tell me that a book gets good after 100 pages, you've just said, this book is 100 pages too long. <laughs> that's what you've said to me. That's, yeah yeah right <laughs> yeah that makes perfect sense yeah but for people who it's if it's easy for people to read and it doesn't matter and they can just read and they just go through that process and it's effortless then i think that they are more forgiving right but i think that that forgiveness sometimes makes them horrible judges of material oh back to the macro micro yeah. and okay big picture this is the big picture stuff you're talking yeah. about yeah yeah. It's like, oh, you're a horrible judge of material. <laughs> right? Often they are. I think I can see how dyslexia can be 
thanked for your ability to so keenly see story problems. Yeah. Yeah, I can. It's hard to explain to people because I think dyslexics. Well, first of all, dyslexics are used to being wrong. Right. Right. They're used to being wrong. And so because I was used to being wrong, it's not a new thing for me and it's not scary to me as it is for other people right I've gone through that embarrassment especially as a kid you can never really be that embarrassed again or that self-conscious and so um, what I've noticed is because of that uh, I've tried very hard to be right when I speak like I don't say it until I know it's true Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is that you will often get arguments. Well, that's your opinion, this or that, but I know I'm right. And it doesn't come out of confidence. It actually comes out of not being confident. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. It's like, no, I'm not guessing. I'm right. Or I wouldn't say it. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I've learned how to, um, I don't know if I've learned, I, I don't know if I came with this equipment, but I can see story problems and I see them. And mm-hmm. I know I'm right when I see them. It's it's like people who are good at math and can do math in their head, and mm-hmm. they're just right. I, I, it's like that to me. It's like, mm-hmm. no, that's right. And I know you're going to have to go through five drafts or something mm-hmm. before you figure out it's right. Mm-hmm. But I already know it's right. It's really interesting. I'll, I'll see these behind the scenes on movies where they go through, I don't know how many drafts to find the story or whatever. And I go, and all I can think is I would have started right there. I would have, where you ended up, I would have started without having to go through all those drafts. Mm-hmm. I don't write drafts. I don't write any drafts. People are like, how could, I don't write them. Hmm. I don't write it until it's right. <laughs> and, and I think it's because writing is a chore too. Oh yeah. And so I'm not going to write anything that I'm going to have to deal with later. And you know what I mean? Like, I mean... To say I don't do drafts, meaning I do a cleanup draft, like if I, oh, this comma, this word, this blah, 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 I do that kind of a draft. But in terms of like the big picture, the story, all that stuff, I don't, nothing changes really. Hmm. Right. And you probably don't overwrite because that's just more work. Right. I mean, um, it's like my friend Matt, he says that people get good at things out of laziness. Yeah. <laughs> because yes. why do something, you're going to figure out the most efficient way of doing something. That's exactly right. To avoid this needless laborious crap yeah that's exactly right i mean it's the stuff that you acquire a talent for some stuff you just come with you just have that equipment when you get here mm-hmm. you know your brain processes information this way or that way i think i i came i came equipped to be a storyteller i just think i came with that equipment but you can have talent which is overrated but if you mistake talent for skill it's a problem and often people will lean on their talent and not develop any skills. Let me put these words together because you said you came with it, like in a way you're innately born, but right. it's a skill, not a talent. I had a facility for okay. it, but it could atrophy if I didn't work it. And the other thing is, it reminds me, you know, I used to go to a barber shop where there were a lot of older uh, black guys at this barbershop mm-hmm. and one of the guys said to me one day um, that he was friends with Jimi Hendrix's father mm-hmm. growing and he'd see this kid playing the guitar all the time mm-hmm. and he just worried about Jimmy like what's gonna happen with Jimmy all he does is play this guitar <laughs> right he's like worried about him and uh, I was the same way about stories mm-hmm. and I think that when you come so did he was he born a musician probably mm-hmm. but he also obsessively played the guitar 
And I was the same way with story stuff. I obsessively studied it. Yeah. But I couldn't have studied something. You know what I mean? I'm not a, a yeah. genealogist. I couldn't have sat down and for hours and read about genealogy. Not right. genealogy. Geology is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. Geology, yeah. right? Because that's not that it's kind of interesting for about 10 minutes to me. Yeah. You have to have a proclivity for it. Right. It's like Bobby Fischer played a lot of chess. Right. He wasn't just born that way. <laughs> right, exactly. He yeah. may have come with some, you know, pattern in his brain that allowed him to play chess. He excelled at it because he had a natural right. gift, but he actually did it more than anybody else. Right, that's, and that's, that's almost always true. So, um, and I think there's a certain amount of focus that dyslexics have that other people don't have. And I also think dyslexics can take themselves out of the equation. So explain the focus and then explain what do you, what you mean by out of the equation. Well, so Einstein, I'll explain them sort of together. Okay. okay. So Einstein figured out what would happen if you went the speed of light, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Einstein did not have special equipment to help him figure that out, right? He couldn't go to the speed of light and figure it out, right? You know, he would do these thought experiments, mm -hmm. right? Now, anybody could have done them mm -hmm. up until then, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that long ago mm -hmm. in the scheme of things. In all of human history, nobody else thought of this, right? Mm -hmm. One guy. Well, what he did was he did these thought experiments where he would sit and he would think, well, what would happen if you mm -hmm. went the speed of light? Now, why couldn't other people do that? They could. But what they, what they impose on that thought experiment is their expectations. Right? So instead of just observing, because all he did is play it out and observe it and take himself out of it. But if you put yourself in it and you go, well, I guess I think this might happen. I think that might happen. I think he didn't, he didn't, he didn't impose his will on the observation. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because he did have that. I mean, he's famous for his thought experiments. Right. I can. Yeah. So he. He does, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and so I think it's, you know, I mean, I see it with myself, and, and I see it with other, I see other people do the exact opposite. So I see other people, for instance, I had a script, I'd written a screenplay, and there was a character in it named Tristan. And a friend of mine read that script and said, I didn't like this Tristan guy because I knew a guy named Tristan, and he was a jerk. Mm -hmm. So they're not, they're putting, they're injecting themselves into. And I notice more people do that than don't. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. They will, they will, you know, so I'll say, I didn't like X movie, you know, like I didn't like Sixth Sense, blah, 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 whatever. Right. And I'll lay out like a cogent argument mm -hmm. and their thing will be, well, I like ghost movies. Right. Well, that has nothing to do with the quality of the piece. You're imposing your thing on it. Right. And I notice more people do that than don't. Right. Does that make sense? And, and I think we live in an, kind of an, an era of massive content. Right, we do. So in early TV days, mm -hmm. you had to cut the fat out quick. Right. But now we have like, we can meander more and have a thing where, where it's generally accepted now that you won't like a show until the third episode. Don't get me started. <laughs> but but how that ties in to what you said about feelings. Right. That ties into 
liking something because you have a it makes you feel good whereas in early tv i could like a show that i had no you know i liked barney miller right yeah barney miller's a great show <laughs> you know so i could like a show where i have nothing in common with these guys right and i'm just sitting in a gel cell so it's in a very right. unpleasant environment right no it's true there's nothing about that show that's sexy <laughs> no there is not no so i mean i just bring that up because I, it seems like like you're on I mean, you're always on to something but I'm just trying to wrap my mind around that you can get a feeling you can go out and shop for a feeling right now right so you don't have to see new content in a right way. no it's true that's exactly or right. environments that you don't like right you don't have to you don't have to stretch right yeah I mean we were growing up there were three channels right three channels. if you were lucky there you, you could get it, PBS or something right um, if you're lucky, but three channels meant that I watched shows that I would never watch given the choice. If I had a choice, I never would have seen Hee Haw, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Nothing against Hee Haw, but I never would have seen it, right? And whoever the kid is now growing up, the black kid, the poor black kid somewhere, has never seen the Hee Haw equivalent. Whatever that is right now, right. I guarantee you he's never seen it. Right. 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 Because he doesn't have to. He can see exactly the thing that he wants to see that speaks to his sensibility or whatever. Right. That's that's what they can consume. But what that does is it makes a bubble for everybody. That's a marketing thing. I think that's I think marketing has ruined the world in a way. Right. Because if they want to sell something to me, then it's funny. Sometimes I'll hear a song on a commercial. I go, oh, that's from when I was a teenager. They're trying to sell me something right now. Right. (laughs) Right. 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 They're selling it to me. Right. Right. Usually not me because I don't have the money that uh, my white counterpart would have. So it's for Alexis. It's like, well, I can't get Alexis. But I you're trying to sell to my generation. Right. But not to me. Um, So. I think marketing has has done that. That's a not a dyslexic thing, or I just think marketing has it's pinpointing who they want to sell to, and then they will give you. It's almost like a concentrated dose of whatever it is you like. You know what I mean? So right, right? and so we'll just give you the good parts of the thing that you like. You like car chases? This movie's all car chases. We're not right. going to bog you down with characters and stuff. Just car chases, whatever. Right. right? Um, and that'll work for a certain audience, and it won't work for anybody else. And, and in fact, it's really interesting when I hear young writers talking about their target audience. Mm-hmm. That makes me crazy, because that's a marketing term, not a creative one. Right? Yeah. 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 It's like, oh, now you're thinking about, so that means you're not going to tell the best story you can tell. You're going to tell the story that's going to appeal to this small demographic i watched on golden pond when i was a teenager <laughs> well yeah well kramer versus kramer was a big hit with young people yeah too you're right a yeah custody battle movie but can you imagine being the age that you and i were when kramer versus kramer came out nowadays yeah we'd never see we'd it. never see it we'd never yeah. see, in fact it probably wouldn't get made it'd be on cable if it got made right <laughs> yeah right it would be a netflix series about <laughs> a custody battle right but it wouldn't be a movie a major movie with major stars in it you know, Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman? No. No. I'm surprised that... Uh, what's the movie? The, the woman in in Ireland? Philomena. Philomena. That was a great movie. And it's it's nice that that did as well as it did. 
Yeah, it is. It was a rare treat. It was, yeah, that's a, I, that's a beautiful movie, I think. So, but anyway, that's, marketing thing is not dyslexic, so we can get back Sorry. to dyslexic. No, we can, but, but, I, but I do think that about marketing. I do think it's been a, a real problem um, for creatives because creatives, younger people are using the language of marketing people right. and that's a bad, that's a bad thing. It's the sort of Walmarting of, of things, right? This is the way Walmart works. In the old days, if you made uh, you made plates, let's mm -hmm. say you're a plate manufacturer, you make dinner plates, and then you would, um, that's what you did, and then a store would go, they'd order your plates. They'd go, hey, we'd like some of those plates. Okay, and they, they'd sell out, and then they'd order more, or they wouldn't, and they wouldn't order more. That's how it worked. Mm -hmm. Walmart changed that model. So they go to now to the manufacturer and they say, you're going to make plates for us um, this color and for this price. And Walmart does such high, high volume that the manufacturer then goes, okay, that's what we're doing. We're making plates for this color and we'll sell them to you for this price, even though we don't feel good about that price, but it's better than nothing and the volume will make up for it, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's a backwards system right now the retailer is deciding what the manufacturer makes and that's what's happening with creatives the retailer is deciding what oh, gets okay. created yeah right the focus group has now made the movie right uh -huh. right we want to see a movie with a giant gorilla well uh you know you know what i mean right it's like but i want to write a movie about a custody bat well sorry we want to see a movie but you know right. so so uh, and i think it's all a guess nobody knows what they want to see till they see it I mean, world enough to know to see Star Wars when it came out, right? right? The original Star Wars, the one I call Star Wars, the ones that new people call a new hope, right? Right, right. right. But nobody wanted Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Nobody was clamoring for Star Wars. You know what I mean? It came out and surprised us all. Nobody wanted Ghostbusters. It came out and blew us away. Mm -hmm. You don't get blown away anymore. Right. Very rarely. Almost never. Yeah. Almost never. It used to be a regular occurrence. Yeah. And now it almost never happens because the creative people are not driving the train and the people in charge don't trust creatives. They trust business people more than they trust creatives. Anyway, yeah. back to dyslexia. But that, what, the, the word focus, because I was, because um, you said focus was different than taking yourself out of the equation oh. the focus part because i was wondering because you know i have trouble reading because i'll meander around in my head oh right um what element of focus do you feel like you possess i know what you mean about this meandering because i do that too when i'm reading or something uh -huh. so i kind of wander around it's not that kind of focus but it's it's sort of a singular focus on a task or an idea mm-hmm right so you don't, so it's not an intense kind of focus in that um, you're focused, again, it's a big picture kind of focus. So Picasso has an idea mm -hmm. and the focus is in how he paints for the rest of his life. Does that make sense? He doesn't have an idea, do a painting and move on to another idea. Okay, <laughs> right? okay. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, he's owning one idea. Yeah. Like the way Frida Kahlo painted herself over and over again. Right. Okay. Right. 
but that's just a pattern of who he had been, right? And he was always looking for the simple way to explain. And I actually find that I do that. I look for the simple way to explain a lot of things. What's the commonality? Not what's yeah. different about these things, but what's the commonality? And that's another thing I've noticed with dyslexics is that there is a search for the common. The, um, the differences seem to disappear. And you look for the commonalities in all kinds of things. Why? How is this like this? And what is it at its core, at its most basic, what is it? I notice a lot of people don't care, but there's a there's actually a book called Dyslexic Advantage where I, I learned a lot of this stuff about how my brain processes information. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess I've noticed that a lot of people see differences, and that's almost all they can see. You know, like when I'm talking about stories, for instance, with mm-hmm. students or other people or I will often see the, the similarities in different kinds of stories, and other people will see them as vastly different stories, right? So for me, if you have a story about a kid being set adrift to be saved because he's about to be destroyed or because he's about to die, it's, it's Superman, but it's also Moses. And I just see the similarities because because you can always update that you can always put it in the past you can always put it in the future you can always put it on oh, another planet yeah. you see what i'm saying yeah and and the the details of it don't matter at all right you see the commonalities of moses and superman whereas other people say oh ancient ancient <coughs> egypt and and, Ma, and Ma, you know yeah right yeah. right but there's no but there's no i don't see the difference i don't okay. my brain does not appreciate that difference i i understand it kind of but i don't understand why it's important you know, if you're telling a story and it's got good guys and bad guys, that's all that's important. It doesn't matter. Right. You know what I mean? The setting is Yeah. Irrelevant. Oh, this one's, these have, la- they have laser swords and these guys, who cares? Yeah. It doesn't make any difference, right? A tyrant is a tyrant no matter when they live or yeah. where they live or what planet or what time. You know, none mm-hmm. of those things are important. They're just things They're on the They're not important to the core of the story. Yeah. But for some people, it's all it is. It's window dressing. Yeah. Right. For some people, that's all it is, though. For some people, I was writing a script. Uh, I'm actually working on a, a graphic novel version of it now, but I was writing a screenplay, and uh, a guy asked me what it was about. And I said, well, it's really about the nature of heroism and blah, blah, blah. And, and I explained kind of what I was getting at. And he said, and, and it takes place in sort of a sort of a future situation. He goes, so it's science fiction. And I go, well, it's really blah, 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 blah. And he didn't hear anything I said. He just went, yeah, science fiction. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Because for him, the fact that it was in a future setting, right. that's it. That's science fiction. But it's like, but if you're telling a story that's universal, right. then it doesn't make any difference. The science fiction element may help. The great thing about um, science fiction fantasy stuff is you can distill stuff. You can caricature it in a way that makes it more pure mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so if you want to talk about you know a dystopian government controlled environment you make you do 1984 mm-hmm. you write that thing where you can just distill it to nothing but that right mm-hmm. if you put it in a modern setting and there are too many nuances and nuances sometimes can get in the way of your storytelling some nuances right you know what i mean so you get it down to its pure form. And so that's what it allows you to do. And that's why it's important. But other than that, it's not an important thing. 
and some stuff that was told as fantasy stories could usually can easily be a science fiction. I remember when Star Wars came out, everybody said, "Oh, it's just a western, right?" Could have made that a western mm -hmm. easily, right? Wouldn't have made any difference. Probably would have been just as big a hit. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't have made any difference. Um, but for some reason, marketing people and and I would say most people think that those things make a huge difference, and they just don't. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think that that's a dyslexic brain at work. And so it can be, in fact, it's funny. I was working on a movie, um, helping on a movie at a studio and we kept talking about these characters um, and there was no story yet. Right. So we're working out the story, but the director I was working with had names for these characters mm -hmm. and I could never remember their names. <laughs> And I could tell at a certain point he got really frustrated with me that right. I couldn't remember their names. Right. But that was a detail. That was a small. Yeah. Right. So I wasn't going to remember their names because they weren't, they didn't matter yet. So I couldn't make my brain latch on to the, that. I think, yeah, latch on to a detail when you're trying to see the big picture of the story. You're trying to help them see what's wrong with the story. Right. So it's, it's irrelevant what the names of the characters are. It didn't make any sense to me. It didn't right. make, but I could tell it was a real deal to this director. Like. Why, why do you keep getting his name wrong, right? right. But I, I couldn't latch onto it. It, didn't, it wasn't connected to anything yet that made any sense to my brain. Right. Yeah. Um, I have a tendency not to be able to latch onto things that don't matter. Yeah. I mean, I really can't. Because it doesn't serve you. Well, like I, I saw a short film with two friends. We went to some screening of some guy's short film, and it was a terrible movie. Okay. It was a terrible movie. And we left... And we, the other two guys were talking about what a terrible movie it was. And they said, they started talking about a shot. Now, this movie was probably 10 minutes long. Right. They started talking about a shot at the beginning that didn't matter and there was no reason for it. And I kept saying, what shot? And they go, that shot in the beginning that didn't have a reason. And I couldn't recall the shot because it didn't matter. Like I oh, literally. I you threw it away. My, my brain literally could not okay. contain that information because it didn't matter. It's just what my brain did. I mean, I, it was weird. And I didn't know that about myself until that moment. <laughs> like, I, you said that you, um, but well, it's funny. That story is an interesting one because you also can bring up things and say, you do recall things that don't work. I mean, right. you are good at that. Right. But it's so, it's funny that like an entire scene could happen where it's so useless to you that you just deleted it yeah. before you could even talk about it. Yeah. I deleted it from my memory. Yeah. Uh, since you've learned more about dyslexia and you read that book on it and stuff, do you feel like the advantages that you have are more accessible to you? Yeah, it's a weird thing because, you know, there are these, I think there's a site called The Gift of Dyslexia and then people are talking about The Gift of Dyslexia. And I think that we do this kind of thing a lot with things where we're trying to make people feel better about their disability, or, right. you know, and, uh, but that's not what this is. Um, when you figure out that, oh, this is why I'm really good at this thing, you know, dyslexics have what looks like a disadvantage, and then, but where they excel, they they really excel. Right. You know, where they excel, they're John Lennon and Picasso and Walt Disney and, yeah, right? Sure. Right? And so, um, and so you start to go, oh, I wouldn't, I literally, like I, I was tweeting once and I tweeted something about Einstein being dyslexic and somebody said, that was great how he overcame dyslexia. It's like he didn't. Right. Don't use the word overcome. Say utilize. Yeah. Maybe? But okay. he didn't overcome dyslexia. He, he was Einstein because he was dyslexic. 
Oh, that's a way better. It's a more, it's a less victimy way of, yeah, you know, working with your condition. We shouldn't be thinking that these things are always bad. Right. I mean, I have being bipolar is no walk in the park. Right. But right. you know, I mean, there there are good things about it. I wouldn't. I'd still rather not have it. Right. I get that. Um. Although I wouldn't say those two are alike because. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think I have more of a disorder, and you have more of a gift. Oh, um, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I d- that's not true. I don't. Know. I don't know. I don't know if I can. But but still, if if I adopt what you're saying right now, yeah, and think of myself as like, think of my condition as being something that I shouldn't overcome as much as utilize. Right. Maybe that would help help me more than make me feel like I was afflicted. I don't right. want to feel afflicted. Yeah, that's a weird feeling when you feel afflicted, right? You feel, because it's helpless. It's a helpless thing. Yeah. Right? Um, and a hopeless thing, right? Oh, right. I have this thing. I'm always going to have this thing, right? So you have to find a way to make friends with it, <laughs> right? Right. And before this book, uh, I read this book and and all of that, I had started to make friends with dyslexia because I had figured out that I had certain a certain skill set that other people didn't have. And, mm-hmm. and um, I had a way of seeing that other people couldn't see. Uh, and it's so clear to me. It's a really interesting thing to have something be so clear to you and so invisible to others. It's a weird thing. I think everybody has some version of that. Right. right? That they see you know maybe they see character traits in people quickly or maybe they you know i think everybody has something that they Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. nobody else can see but it's it's that's always a little bit of a curse because nobody quite believes you when you can see things nobody else can see yeah i mean i've we've talked about film a lot and story and you know i've known you since i was 16 years old and you still completely engage me and and surprise me with what you can bring up that I couldn't see. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. If we if we discuss it yeah. when we discuss movies mm-hmm. um, and TV shows. Sure. And it's it is it, it can be really stupefying. And then I'll, I'll think about it and maybe rewatch something. Oh. You know. But uh, but how as far as like I guess the the word you used earlier is perfect. But cogent. I mean, it's this cogency of like thinking that you can sum it up and you can see. I'll come to you and I'll say, I really like this show. It's it's got this thing, but I kind of like this. But you can actually put into really constructive words what I'm, what it is that it's my problem with. Sure, sure. And, and it's such an amazing thing to hear. Oh. It's like it's like watching somebody do karate. Right, do right, it, right. Because you do it so well. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, sometimes people aren't happy about that, right? They I've do. seen that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they you can really piss people off. Yeah. And you yeah. and it's interesting to watch you piss somebody off. Yeah. To me as a as an onlooker. Right. Because I'm wondering to myself, why is this upsetting that person so much? Right. Well, there's probably a couple of reasons for it. You know, I, I have a friend, he used to be a bodybuilder, and um uh, we we hung out a lot in uh when I first moved to LA and, and uh, we were in our twenties and he was, you know, this bodybuilder. And he said to me that people would sometimes want to pick fights with him because he was a bodybuilder. And they, oh, you think you're so tough. I've heard this from tall guys, too, guys who are really tall. They say, oh, short guys always want to pick a fight with you. They have something to prove. And, you know, that's just the reality they walk around 
with, right? In fact, I don't know if there is a branch of psychology that deals with this, but I think there ought to be about the psychology of walking around. The, the world teaches you something because the body you walk around in has something to do with how people interact with you, right? Yeah. So, so you learn, so you have a certain psychology because, you know, if you're a black man in America, you have a certain perspective that other people don't have because I'm constantly being, you know, I see people cross the street or, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. oh, here he comes, I gotta cross the street or whatever. Like, I like to take pictures and I had to get cards printed up uh, with a website, um, my name and a photo on it because when I would go into certain neighborhoods, people always thought I was casing the joint with my tripod and my camera. And I got, I, one of the reasons that I, that, I, that I take pictures and take walks is to relax, and it was becoming a problem. Oh, great, so you're, try, you're doing this art form right. that is kind of like a, a, not your main art form, it's a parallel thing that yeah. you're doing to relax, and then, you, then it's causing you anxiety. Yeah, it was causing me anxiety, so I right. got these cards so I wouldn't have to explain to people. You know, you could tell the way people were questioning me, and one guy was like, I was just concerned, and you know, we've been robbed a lot, and like, I don't, Again, I'm not sure what that has to do with me, right? <laughs> right you know. Right. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So, um, my point was, um, what was my point? Oh, we were talking about when people, when people get pissed. Oh, at when you. people get mad. So, oh yeah. So my friend Wayne, bodybuilder, right, says that people would pick on him because he was a body, or you know, want to pick fights with him because he was big and strong. And so he started wearing these big T-shirts mm -hmm. to cover up his muscles, and he watched. Uh, people getting angry at me over the years right? Uh, when I would talk about a movie or they'd say, I like so-and-so. And I go, oh, really? I didn't like it because of X, Y, and Z. Right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. they would get angry. You've right. seen it. Yeah. And he said to me one day, he explained to me why he wore big T-shirts. And he said, you need a big T-shirt for your brain. Because you have to find, you know, now I don't think I'm doing anything. The same thing, you know, Wayne was lifting weights for his own reasons, but he wasn't doing it so he could be a big tough guy or, you know what I mean? Right. And and I'm not trying to make people feel anything. Right. But then I also think it's it's unfair to him to have to wear a big t-shirt. and It's unfair to you to have to appear less intelligent than you are. Well, yeah, it is. In order to make other people feel better about themselves. Yeah, it's a weird ludicrous. thing. It's a weird thing. Yeah. Um, there's another factor that it depends on. It depends on who it is. It's not always true. Mm -hmm. But there's another factor, and I'm sure it would be true of a woman, right? Mm -hmm. Where, mm -hmm. where if you don't come in the body that people think is an intelligent one, then I think it challenges their vision of themselves. Wait a minute. If I'm not smarter than this black guy, right. I must be an idiot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of anger comes from. And in fact, going back to dyslexia, one of the there's this intersectionality with dyslexia that that um, you know we tend to talk about things. We're just now starting to talk about where things intersect, mm -hmm. right? You know, there's now black feminists and maybe other feminists of color are talking about white feminism, right? Because oh, yeah. when feminism started, yeah. they sort of did not concern themselves directly with the problems of women of color, right? Right? Yeah. So, and so they felt excluded, right? Because mm -hmm. what disappears is your advantage. Whatever your advantage is disappears. You don't think it's a thing, mm -hmm. right? So um, I don't think about my maleness very often. And I don't know what I get. Right. Th that, yeah. you know what I mean? How could I know, right? I don't know what I get mm -hmm. that I would not get. I mean, sometimes I do. I do think about my advantages sometimes and what they are. Um, 
like I know working for some of the studios that I've worked for, you know, my brother was a darker guy mm -hmm. than I am. Mm -hmm. He was taller. And I think if I was darker and I was taller or if I spoke a different way, mm -hmm. I don't think I would get the same opportunities that I get. Uh-huh. I don't think I get all the opportunities that I ought to get. I think the ones I have gotten happen because I sort of have an acceptable... An acceptable blackness? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I do. So anyway, so I think that... But being a kid in a predominantly white school district with predominantly white teachers who many of them already had a preconceived idea about your intelligence and your ability to learn. When that happens and it shows itself to be true because of something like dyslexia, then, then both things are happening, right? Racial bias, even if it's unconscious, right? Even if it's uh, implicit bias is, is at work and that's working on me. And then the dyslexia is sort of reinforcing to them and sometimes to me that I'm not, I'm still, I, you know, it's funny when people talk about my intelligence because part of me still, still feels like I'm not smart. That there's that little kid who was mm -hmm. always told he wasn't smart, who lives in me and, uh, and sometimes makes me make poor decisions and sometimes, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I you know, so I, I still struggle with that. That's too, it's too deep in a way to go away. If that makes any sense. It's too. Well, yeah, I mean, and that that part it is the things that happen to us when we're younger in that way, those are things that you do have to overcome. Right. And they don't go away. No. There's shame and and right, yeah. and and being yeah, I mean the way you've been treated because you you're black. Yeah. That, it's just it's just not going to go away. It doesn't go away. No. Yeah. And the way I've been treated as a woman isn't right. going to go away. And the yeah. way I've been treated for being gay isn't going away. Right. You know, even if things get better. Right. It's still part of you. It's, it's woven in. Yeah, it's woven into you. And, and but the other thing is it's it's in your but you know, it's funny because I didn't know this until I I guess I I've known it about maybe I've known it 20 years now. But I didn't know that there was this idea out there that black people were just kind of complainy. You know what I mean? Like, I hear this, like, you're always complaining about this, and why are you thinking about that, and blah, blah, blah. I, I didn't know that that was a sort of a, a new stereotype, I uh -huh. think, that you guys are always complaining about stuff. Right, yeah, I hear this kind of thing, right? Like, like for instance, I heard a, a, I was talking about uh, screenwriting and how hard it was for me as a screenwriter to get a break it took me 20 years to get an agent you mm -hmm. know all these things right and then my agents wouldn't send any of my work out it was crazy and I was kind of explaining this to someone um, a friend of mine who took her first screenwriting class from me has since made more money as a screenwriter mm -hmm. than I ever have as a screenwriter and I was talking about how hard it was, and she cut me off and said, it's hard for everybody. Hmm. I found that interesting, considering right. she took her first grading class from me. Right. Right, 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 yeah. right. She's working and getting paid to write screenplays, and I'm not. So there's a weird thing, because there's all kinds of evidence that black people are not complaining. You can see it on the news every day. Yeah. We have the largest incarceration rate in the world and most of those people are black and brown right mm -hmm. we know that 
That's a fact. We know that. We know that the school system um, segregates and that you're in a poor school district. We know that, right? And yet there is a mountain of evidence and yet people still go, I don't know why they're complaining. That's a weird thing to me, right? Oh, and you said, oh yeah, you said if things change, that thing is still in you. Right. But I'm. But actually, I think what happens is that things get more subtle but don't change, right? Okay. They don't change and, and instead of, the idea is, oh, you're being overly sensitive. You hear that a lot, I hear that kind of thing. You're being mm-hmm. overly sensitive. It's not, it's like, no, I'm not overly sensitive. I'm sensitized. I can see it way before you can see it. Right. Right. And so I remember, I mean, now we're, we're dealing with Donald Trump and him being the, right. We're dealing right. with that. And, right. and, um, all of the, 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 the racism that that guy spews and everything. And I remember talking to a friend of mine and I was saying a few years ago, I said, there's something going up right now with the Republican party and they aren't just an opposing viewpoint. There's something very dangerous that they're saying and very dangerous that they're doing. And he kind of scoffed because I said, this is not just another point of view. It's a dangerous point of view right now. And he scoffed and like I was being unreasonable. And I have noticed this over and over again. Usually the people at the bottom, mm-hmm. and in this country, it's mostly black people at the bottom, are the canary in the coal mine. Okay. And they can smell the gas. And they go, I smell gas. And people are so used to dismissing that group. They go, I don't smell any gas. Right? And then they all start choking. We tried to tell you there was gas. The same thing happened with the housing bubble and all of that. Uh-huh. The predatory loans, people were saying, hey, this is not good. And, uh, but it was only happening to black and brown people. So people went, yeah. Right, 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 right. Right. And then it goes up the chain. That's a really good point. Because yeah. it starts happening. Right. To black and brown people first. Right. White people don't feel it yet. Right. Like, what do you guys you look? You're complaining again. <laughs> right. Right. You're always complaining, <laughs> right. and they're like, "Wait, why is my rent going up?" <laughs> right. Yeah. In fact, that's happened in our neighborhood. Yes. Right. Yes. What's interesting about our neighborhood, right, as it gets gentrified. Right. And it's funny because I, I'm struggling to know the difference between gentrification and colonization. Did I tell you this? No. Please do. Okay. So. Let's not forget what I'm talking about okay. before I get... So what are, we, what are we talking about first? Uh, oh, the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, canary stuff, in the coal right? mine. Okay. So we'll come back to the canary in the coal mine. Okay. But I want to talk about gentrification. Here's what I've noticed about gentrification is that gentrification works exactly the same as colonization. Here's what I mean. There's an area where the quote-unquote savages live. You don't go to those areas. I remember when I moved to LA, I was told, I, I, I worked in creature shops and I was always the only person of color. I was only the, well, not always the only person of color. There, there was an Asian woman who worked at one shop, but always the only black person mm-hmm. on any movie I worked on. And people become friends with you and then you sort of get sort of honorary status where they go, oh, you're like us. And I remember moving there and people telling me never to go to South Central LA and never go here and never to go here. And pretty soon I realized, Oh, it's where the black people are. That's okay. where they're telling me not to go. Okay. Right? Um, and there's a whole thing about that and how those are deemed as bad spaces. Sure. Like they did a study where they just replaced the people mm-hmm. in a neighborhood and asked mm-hmm. people whether it's a good neighborhood or a bad neighborhood. And if mm-hmm. it's white people in it, they'll say it's a good neighborhood. Black people, But they won't change anything in the neighborhood, just the people. 
Oh. Yeah. So, so, right, so, so right, so. We are screwed with our racism. We are so screwed. It's so deep. It's, it's very it's deep. So it's necessarily yeah. deep. There's a whole, I think, yeah. reason for that. But, but anyway, uh, and I, and I say that without any judgment. I have no judgment about it in a way. Like, um, I don't have judgment about racism existing because it was built, it's baked into the cake. My problem is the resistance to that idea. Right. 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 You know what I mean? Like, you're not a bad person if you grow up getting all of the same information that we're supposed to get that tells us who's on top and who's on bottom and why. You're not, that's, that's just baked into the system. But when somebody says, hey, this is what's going on, and you go, that's not going on. Like, right. my friend, it's tough for everybody. Denial. That, that, that's yeah. the problem. Right. That, that, that is the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. I like, yeah. But, but we could definitely, Back to, Back to gentrification. Yeah. Okay, so there's always a place where the, the savages, in quotes, live. And nobody goes there, mm-hmm. right? They say nobody goes there, right. right? Even though there's people there. Right. Nobody goes there, yeah. right? Right. And then what happens is, um, and you can see it with the expansion of the West, or you can see it whatever early colonization here. They go, we want either free land or cheap land. Right? right? And so they expand. Okay. Right? So they go, and it's usually people who are younger, right? Who don't mind taking the risk mm-hmm. and usually more open to new things and new people, right? So they'll go, I don't, I'll go there and I'll trade with the natives there, wherever it is, right? Mm-hmm. So they move because the housing's cheap or the land is free, right? The right. government's giving away land like they did, with, you know, right? Okay. Right? Um, they don't care who's there, by the way. People are there living their lives. Nobody cares. They just move in. But at first, it's kind of okay, mm-hmm. right? They'll trade with the native population, whatever, right. right? Learn to speak the language, learn to embrace those cult, that culture a little bit, and there'll be a little bit of an exchange. But those are the pioneers. Okay. There's always the pioneers. I remember when people started buying houses here, young couples, white couples I knew going into black areas going, but it's a cheap, I can get a cheap house there, right? Right. Well, I, I can see how that would happen. But they don't understand that this starts this displacement right Mm -hmm. so what happens is they move there and then it's sort of like they take the they decontaminate it a little bit Mm -hmm. and so other people go well there's other people down there who look like me and have my culture so i'll move there right right so you have the pioneers then you have the settlers okay and when the settlers come in they start going this place would be much nicer if we got rid of all of these people who kind of were here before and they start treating you like you invaded them okay this is making so much sense to me right now isn't it because we've moved into set the settlers right the settlers are now upon us because it before it was the pioneers right and we were freaking out right here on capitol hill right wow this is really good yeah so right it's the same pattern over and over again the settlers come in, they go, this would be great, but we got to get rid of all of these savages. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? right? Um, and so, and then they, they do whatever they have to do. Uh, they raise the rents, make it impossible to Is be there. Is the settler part the part you would call gentrification? Um, it's, well, I would say the pioneers are the, big, the, the tip of the spear. Okay. Right? So it's all gentrification. It's just, it just, it happens slowly. It doesn't usually, I mean, even though it's happening So you're quick, saying those two words are one of the same I can't gentrification see the and, and, and Coloniz- colonization. I don't know the difference. I can't figure out the difference. Because people, 
and there's a difference between gentrification and making something nicer. Right. And I think that there are certain like buildings that I just want torn down because they've been sure. standing empty for a oh, long yeah, time. Sure. And that's what I would call making something nicer. Right, sure. And I think that those two terms get confused. I think that that's true. Where well, they're like, why are they complaining? It's so much nicer now. Well, that's because it's usually it's usually nicer for the people moving in. I heard a woman say once that um, she was a black woman in a certain area. I don't know. I don't think it was this area. I think it was on NPR. And she was talking about, you know, at first something comes in like a wine shop or a cheese shop in your neighborhood that's completely been ignored. And none of that stuff happens in your neighborhood. And you're like, great. I like to have a wine shop. Great. I like to have a, mm-hmm. a place where I can get mm-hmm. nice cheese or whatever. But what happens is you start to realize that that isn't for you. Okay. That that space isn't for you. Right. That you're you're made to feel uncomfortable when you go into those spaces or mm-hmm. those spaces. There's a lot of what I call Jim Crow pricing, right? Okay. Which is all you do is open a restaurant and mm-hmm. charge way more than the people who live there. Right. And then you've afford. created a separation. Right. Without, without yeah. you know. You, you didn't have to say it. You didn't have to say only, it. You only get certain kinds of customers. Yeah. Do, do you watch the United Shades of America? I, I saw, I fact, I saw the one on Portland that you. That's yeah. exact. I was, yeah. that's the one I was going to, yeah. I was going to text you the other day and say to, to watch it. You did actually. You oh, did. I did. Yeah, okay. I did watch it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was oh. good. Yeah, it was yeah. good. And it, and it, it hit on these finer points. Right. Yeah, it did. And I don't think any of the so-called hipsters feel like they're bad people or are bad people no they're not i would describe nobody describes themselves as a hipster but i am by all the you know what i mean by the things that i like and the things that i do i could definitely be put in that category and everybody that when you say that it's it's never a positive thing right but i usually know that if somebody says oh yeah that coffee shop it's so hipster i'm like oh where is it i want to (laughs) go I love when they say they're so mean to you. I'm like, ooh, sign me up. What's the address? That's they think they're better than everybody. Yes, I want that. Though. Really? But, I mean, That's well, not. A, I know what you mean. I just kind of like snotty service. Do you really? Yeah. I uh, mean, yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. Is it because you've worked in service? It's because I've worked in service, and if people are completely over it and they show it, yeah, I feel like that's being honest. Oh sure, okay. <laughs> well, but it's interesting because Portland. Portland's an interesting thing, uh, place. Um, and I've said this for a long time uh, about Portland. I don't know if I've ever been to a more racist place in my life, except for maybe the town I was born in in Missouri. <laughs> um, well, he brought up that fact that in the Oregon Constitution, black people couldn't move there until 1927. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a completely... It was a, it was a big... Uh, they had a big Klan presence there, and it was a whites-only state right wow <laughs> yeah um so it has but you're a, saying portland in particular is a well, very I, racist place Port, I, the whole I, state. I don't i don't know i haven't i you know when you, certain people gay men black men you don't go to certain you know like i'm not going to rural right oregon right oh yeah rural rural i can't say that word yeah, rural? that word rural yeah. oregon is frightening so i don't know what yeah. it's like i'm not going yeah but but um Portland um, was surprising because it's uh, progressive, in quotes. Right, right. And so it was surprising to meet so much racism there. Right. Um, but it's um, it's rife with racism. It's all friendly racism. Nobody, most of it is friendly. 
Uh-huh. Um, Friendly racist. You know what I mean? No, I know what you mean, but it, it's just funny to hear that yeah, term. It, it, nobody, nobody, you know, it's not like the old South Jim Crow thing. It's not like Missouri was awful. Uh, I went there when my dad died. I hadn't been there for a long time. And uh, it was awful. Mm-hmm. It was awful. I mean, when Ferguson happened, it was like, yeah, that's going to happen because that place is awful um, in terms of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's awful. It's like the clock hasn't moved at all. I, I felt like when I was there, the only thing that stopped me from being lynched was the the year on the calendar. <laughs> like, whoa, 2007, we can't lynch him anymore. Like, that's what it felt like. Our options have been taken from us. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. It was palpable. But Portland is not that different. And so, when when I watched Kamau Bell's piece on it, yeah. it you know, it's really is like, it made me f- kind of cringe and be embarrassed in a way because I'm, you m- remember earlier in this conversation when you said, I can't know what being male gets for me because I'm just male and right. I don't, I can't parse it out. Right. But when he explains what white gets for you, and what is so white about it? Right. That it really made me see it. Sure. You know, and and also see that a lot of things I like are quote unquote white. You know, just a lot of the. I, I'm just I, you know I'm I'm it's like ew I'm I'm a white person. Do you know what I mean? Like I had that that like I'm so. Right. I'm I'm the person that he's talking about and that made me kind of cringe. Sure. Because you don't want to be that person. And I think the, back to something you said earlier, the desperation to not be that person yeah. is what makes people deny. Right. And I don't want to deny. Right. And it's more important for me to go, to to just cop, cop to it. Right. Well, I, you know, we we all have some, advantage and we've all been um, conditioned Mm -hmm. by the society to behave in certain ways, think certain things, react in certain ways. And so I remember, and I feel terrible uh, when I think about it, but I remember there was a kid I'm sure was gay in Mm -hmm. seventh grade or eighth grade and we teased him relentlessly. I wish I could apologize. I don't know his name. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I, I wouldn't quite call that in fact, when I was in high school, and it was a very racist high school, and some of the kids, people would describe them as racist, but I don't think that's racism yet. Mm-hmm. And I don't think what was happening when I was a kid was homophobia yet. Mm-hmm. It was junior high, thank God they're not picking on me. Okay, interesting distinction. It's not homophobia yet because it hasn't been called out yet, and it hasn't been taught yet the, what what yeah right we don't know yet the things that we said in right yeah in the 70s about race were you know we wouldn't use the language that we used then right we wouldn't right so the thing isn't it doesn't exist as a concept yet people still use the word negro back then right when i was a kid right they did it was not an uncommon word no right and so um but i think that it was it was so beyond you know, when you're that age, it's all about like, I don't want attention on me. Yeah. I don't want people to pick on me. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So I always think, oh, it could be the overweight kid or it could be that it doesn't have it's a, anybody that's going to get me through the day by not being the focus. Right. 
Yeah, and so and that's the society teaching you, right? But I think until you reach a certain age and you're making decisions and you can, I, I think it, it seems, these things seem to really come up, certainly with regards to, in regards to race, around the time people start applying for college, mm-hmm. right? And they, and they go, wait a minute, you can get a scholarship I can't get. What's mm-hmm. up with that, right? Even though if you looked at how many scholarships are just are race-based, there are very few of them. And there's a whole thing about that and how people feel like um, it's always, there's some, and other people have talked about this, but there's always like for a job or for a, for a college slot, it's always uh, a less qualified black person mm-hmm. got the job, right? Or mm-hmm. got the position or whatever. And there's all kinds of diversity, right? So for instance, they don't say, they gave a an unqualified white woman my slot. They have other things about white women, but that's not what they say, right? Ultimately, they're white, and so it went to the right person. And it's weird to be black and have people question whether or not you got a position because of your blackness. Right. Even though you have to work so hard to get it. Right. It's a really weird thing because people will treat you that way. Like, mm-hmm. you're not a real this they just had to hire you they just had to bring you in you're not actually mm-hmm. there's a sort of disrespect thing that comes along with that that's really interesting i think that like for instance when i i was working on a tv show and i had to sign all this stuff about sexual harassment and uh, you can't say this you can't do that all that's good all makes sense to me but what was interesting it was the most racist place i'd ever worked and nobody i didn't have to sign anything about racism and I think it's because that's the intersectionality. White women are ultimately white. And so they're somebody's sister, somebody's daughter, mm-hmm. somebody's mm-hmm. wife. And mm-hmm. so even though they have to struggle to get those things, it's easier to convince, like, well, I don't want anybody hitting on my wife at the job. Mm-hmm. It's easier to convince people. But if, it's, if they have no connection, uh, Dan Savage says this. He goes, he thinks the reason that gay rights have moved quicker Mm-hmm. than um, other rights is because people can have gay people in their family. Right. Who they love. Right. And you don't have a black person in your family. Right. White. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so okay. you don't. So there's a disconnect. Right. Right. So there's a weird advantage. Right. Um, there's a weird advantage. Which is also the thing that sucks the most about being gay, which is when you're black, your parents are black, your family's black. No, it's and then, true. And then you get to be like, but they suck, stay away from them, we're sticking together. But when you're gay, you're all alone in your own family. So oh, they sorry. all have their own. Right, no, that's true. The issues that yeah. different groups have yeah. is interesting to me. I mean, we, like Lisa and I were talking about um, when you are a woman, you grow up a woman and a girl and then a woman, you get a barrage of things happen to you. Of course. That. And she was talking about how when you're young, you'll flirt with a guy and you'll like male attention. Right. And you'll giggle and be coquettish and all that stuff. And she brought up that scene in the movie Cape Fear with Robert mm-hmm. De Niro. Right, right. Where he's flirting with her and she's twirling her hair. Right. And she loves the attention, the Juliette Lewis character right. loves the attention. And then he, he starts to put his thumb in her mouth. Right. Right, that's right. Like he's invading right. her body. Right. And then she's got to like take her little retainer out and you can tell how uncomfortable she is. Right. It's like, okay, this went from flattery to way too far. Right. But I still have to kind of fold right. it in. But, but the reason I bring that thing up is these are things that 
turn us from a girl to a woman or or things that happen to us as girls and that this right. is the thing that gets compounded over and over again for it, when you're a female right i don't know so it's it, it it's like the okay when you're black your family's black when you're gay you're the only one no, but right. then the, both of those things have their flip side right so right. there are positives and negatives that's and, definitely true and and so and like Lisa and I said, we don't play the comparison game. Right. It's not. It's not like I'm going to say that as a woman, you don't understand me, trans woman. I'm not going to say that. Because, that's not. Because that's yeah. not. I don't what like that when people do that. Yeah. At all. No, I know what you and mean. They have a world of issues, and and I get educated on them constantly. Sure. Sure. Um, I love getting an eye, a good eye opening, from somebody's point of view. Yeah. Like you being black, I right. get to hear what the things that happened to you and i w- wish i had more black friends than i do mm-hmm. but it's hard in this where i live and stuff well you know? it's also it's it you know it's a the funny thing is the system works the way it was designed to work uh-huh. it was designed to make sure you didn't have black friends right it's a system that's designed to do do that right we live in an area that was um redlined right, right. so you know uh a block from here was where all the black people could live. Mm-hmm. And on this side was where all the white people could live until 1970-something, right? That was right. the banks would... It's by it. design. Yeah. It's by design, right? Yeah. And the school districts and everything else, it's designed that way. Yeah. It's it's supposed to... That's the way it's supposed to and be. And I think that, that that's part of that white guilt. Like, mm-hmm. why don't I have more? You know, right. it's like, it, it's all woven into... Okay, this is just the way it is. Let's recognize this is the way it is. Right. Stop saying I'm not like this. I'm not racist. I'm not this. Other people. Just say I am the product of my environment. Right. And all I can do is get educated. But we still have to speak openly. If people are too, you know, right. you know, you and I and and everybody need to have honest conversations and not be shut. That's what I hate about Facebook. It's a shutdown. Oh, I don't and know. And I know I, you don't. I, yeah. I know you don't go on Facebook. Yeah. But you can't talk about any issue on Facebook because you'll get smacked down right. so hard. Right. That there's no conversation. Right. Yeah. At all. But anyway, I I got That's off okay. on it. That no, I guess it's just the idea that there's a kind of um, sensitivity that you have when you are a certain kind of victim. Right. Right of the society. Right. Right. So there is, if something particularly homophobic showed up somewhere mm-hmm. in the media, a commercial or a thing, I might be oblivious to it because it's not, I'm not a victim of it. That's, it's, right. you know, it reminds me of the Redskins thing. I don't even know how you can argue for this mascot um, because... When you don't understand, when you're not a victim of that stereotype, mm-hmm. when you don't have to confront that stereotype in your life, you don't understand how powerful that can be, right? So, for instance, and this is true, and I'm not the only person to say this, when something happens in the media, like if there's a murder or if there's a shooting or if there's a thing, every brown and black person is hoping that the perpetrator doesn't look like them, isn't black, isn't brown. The reason for this is because it becomes part of a 
that event doesn't have, happen separately from you. It's right. the way people see you. So it's right. the why. It's why you know recently two people stopped me to say, "What are you doing around here? We've had robberies." So if somebody robs someone, then I have to suffer the consequences of it, and that might be a job interview. That might be right. 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 Yeah, it's kind of like how if I'm watching Hillary Clinton, yeah, and if she says something that makes me cringe, I cringe as all of womankind. Right. I don't cringe just because it's a certain politician. She's now representing all of womankind. Right. And that's it's like how sick you've been ever since Obama's been president I because have of been. all the yeah. He's the spotlight's on him, but it's not just him, it's you. Right. And it yeah. It's going to most likely when Hillary Clinton right. is president because it's looking that way. Right. I'm going to be on tenterhooks with everything that she does that's exactly right and it's the same thing that people didn't realize about you know i had this conversation with about obama the whole time which is that if you're not a person who's used to navigating an invisible maze that white people don't know you have to navigate i have to talk this way or they won't take me seriously i have to move this way and i mean there's all kinds of little things Mm -hmm. i remember as a kid and people don't know this because they don't understand that white is a culture too they seem to think everybody else is a culture, right? Mexicans have a culture. Right. Chinese people have a culture. But in America, white is a culture too. And if you're not part of that culture, you have to learn it in order right. to get along in it. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Um, I was talking to an older guy one time, and uh, he was amazed. He says, you know, when you eat with white people, and I'm like, I have a lot of white friends, so I've eaten with a lot of white people. He goes, they always leave an extra piece of food they, they don't eat in case somebody wants it, but nobody eats it. Right? right? And I'm like, yeah, I've noticed that. It's like, that's a white thing. It's like, that is totally a white thing. Like, other people don't do that. Hmm. They eat it. Right. Well, if you're not going to eat it. And I think it comes from a culture. I've noticed a lot of these things come from a culture of abundance. But if yeah. you don't come from a culture of abundance, and sometimes it's white people don't all come from abundance, but sometimes it's, it's um, mimicking the people right. who have abundance. Right. right, 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 yeah. Right. It's identifying with that group that has, you know. So, I mean, I, I remember I remember spending the night at a friend's house one time and his mother said, oh, let me get you a top sheet. I didn't know what she was talking about. Okay, yeah. I never had a top sheet. Right, you like, just went straight to blanket. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a sheet uh-huh. and a blanket. But uh-huh. a top sheet didn't even cross my mind as a thing because... That's more stuff that you wouldn't spend money on. Yeah. Why do we need this superfluous sheet that's not, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and there's a lot of those things, right? There, there's this kind of drinking glass and that kind of drinking glass, and you drink this out of that. and you, That's all about abundance, right? You can have a glass for every kind of drink. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's... You know, it's silly. It's silly. Yeah. You know, um, there's all these things. Oh, well, that's the good China, all these things, right? <laughs> right. Like, we never had good, good China, right? right. <laughs> we had plates, and those right. were the plates, right? right? You know, and, um, but we didn't have room. We didn't have money to spend on that stuff. Mm-hmm. None of that stuff got passed down. When you come from a history of slavery, there's not a lot sure. that gets passed down. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? You know? Um, so you've learned white culture. Yeah. You, I, I remember having to learn it consciously having to learn it in order mm-hmm. to get along and to thrive in it right you know oh i can't nobody eats that i remember I, I i get teased about this by the guy who i worked with back then but he didn't know what was going on 
when Billy Joel was like hip in the 80s. Sure. And I had this job and uh, I would be in a room by myself and I would play Billy Joel and because uh, I was trying to blend in. Oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember this guy teased me because uh, he didn't like Billy Joel and he liked Peter Gabriel. Right. Right. And I was like, oh, so there's different kinds of oh, white no, people. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like this guy thinks that's crap. Right. Right, like, and that kind of blew your studies, didn't it? Well, it just no, it just added to it. Right, and now now you know the difference between Billy Joel and Peter Gabriel. You're like, okay, right, I got, yeah, I got, I got this. right, okay, because there's no such there's no equivalent for white America. They don't have to learn any of that stuff. They don't have to learn how other people do things. But everybody else has to learn how white people do things. And if you don't do it that way, you're doing it wrong. And in fact, there's something called code switching. Do you know code switching? I've heard that, but I can't remember. I think NPR has a series on something called code switching. But code switching is really interesting. I remember this because when Oprah started to get popular, Mm -hmm. I remember, and people would say it with kind of a sneer to me. People would love Oprah, and they, oh, I love Oprah, which is also kind of weird because they love her almost like, you're trying to convince me too much that you love Oprah, but that's another. Right. That's another. It's too much of a hard sell. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I love her. She's great. She's so beautiful. Yeah, it's like I like I like Oprah. I got nothing against Oprah, but seriously, <laughs> relax. But anyway, so here's the thing about code switching. I oh, and Oprah. So I remember people saying about Oprah. Uh, I love her, but when she has black guests on, she puts on that black voice, and they would say it with I a kind of. I remember people saying that, and yes. they would say it with kind of a sneer and kind of a like. Can you, right. right? She knows how to speak properly. Let's put that in quotes. But she puts on this black thing, right. right? And all I could think is, what makes you think that's the voice she's putting on? Mm-hmm. Right? Now, everybody knows if somebody's from New York and they talk to another New Yorker, their accent comes back. Mm-hmm. If they're from the South, they talk to somebody from the South, their accent comes back. Right. It's a human thing mm-hmm. that happens where you kind of go home you speak the language you're comfortable with the one you grew up with yeah right yeah and and so it's like being bilingual in a way so i can be talking to a white friend and i might talk to a black friend differently because it's almost another language if i spoke spanish Mm -hmm. i might be speaking spanish to that person and so people think why you're putting that on it's like no i had to learn how to talk like you so you think i'm intelligent so you think i'm right right and people never want to feel like they don't belong so when oprah isn't theirs if oprah has black guests and she code switches right yeah then they feel like wait i, I suddenly i feel like an outsider and right. i'm not on the inside right and white people like to have real estate everywhere right and when right. they don't belong they get very upset it's, that is definitely They true. have to There's... belong to everything and every place has to let them in. And the black yoga place can't exist if they can't do yoga there, right. et cetera. So she can't have right. one hour of a month to right. code switch right. without alienating some white person that feels insecure. And like if you start speaking jive. Right, you know, right, like, right, right. It's, I... What does that say about me if I all of a sudden get upset that you're speaking differently? You've code switched with your black friends. Right. Does that, that shows that I feel like if there's a side of you that I don't know that our friendship is less real? What is it? What is it? 
I don't know what it is. Uh, all I know is there was a linguist. Um, there's a linguist they talk. I, I keep mentioning NPR, but uh, which I actually think actually sometimes I can't listen to it because it's too white for me sometimes. But <laughs> I do listen to it quite a bit. It's part of the language that you need to speak. Yeah, in a way, that's why I started listening to NPR. Right. To learn more white, and then I got acculturated. Right. And I like NPR. I got nothing against it. Right. But sometimes I go that perspective is just a white perspective. Yeah. You know oh, yeah. I mean? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they try. They're trying. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, I heard um, they had a guy talking about uh, classic Christmas songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a black guy they have talked, the jazz guy they have on, he talks about stuff and he was talking, and he says, oh, here's a classic and it was um, uh, James Brown, uh, Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. Mm-hmm. And she said, he said, here's a classic and the woman laughed and she's like, oh, it's a classic. And I went, Oh, that's interesting. She doesn't like, no, we have classics. You know what I mean? But she yeah. laughed like that can't really be a classic. Right. And he kind of went, well, it is in my neighborhood. Right. But he, you know, he kind of dis, he kind of brushed it off as you get used to doing. But it was right. interesting. She almost made it sound like that's ridiculous that you're calling. Because there's only white classics. Right. What's classical. Yeah. Right. Okay. okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. she doesn't know that. She doesn't, she, right. she'd be appalled to mm-hmm. hear that that's, but that's what I heard. I went, well, she. She's not letting that be a classic that maybe she's not privy to every classic, right? Yeah. Or if it's outside of her sphere, then she feels like if I don't, I, I, I am educated on the classics. And if you say something's a classic and I don't know it is, then that makes me uneducated, which makes me insecure. Well, there's also this idea that white is mainstream. Right. So if it's not a classic in this sphere, it can't really be called a classic. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. How do you call it a classic? Right. There was some guy who would, who who did a thing where he walked around going to bookstores asking for the white literature section. Oh, <laughs> right. Uh, right. Because he's trying to call attention to the fact that that's just called literature. Oh, yeah. Believe right. me, with women's. Right. This there's the World Cup and the Women's World Cup. Right. It's not the Men's World Cup. Right. 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 Just and then there's in in my to this day, my nephew's history book there's sections on women's history and black history see that's ridiculous in a history book it's ridiculous so that means by cutting away the rest is white history right how else can you interpret that right and white history is just called history history. yeah and I, as a woman, know exactly what you're talking about, and you, as a black person, know, I know what I'm I know talking exactly about as talking. a woman. Yeah. So this it's, is something that you, you know, you, you and I share this one. And how do you carve out history? Like, how do you just have white? It's like George Washington had slaves, right? So, right. and he had a slave that he is rumored to have been sleeping with, right? Probably more than one, but mm-hmm. one in particular. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson, same thing, right? In fact, Thomas Jefferson. Um, his, we'll call her mistress, Sally Hemings, uh-huh. was actually the half-sister of his wife because her dad owned uh-huh. Sally Hemings' mother and fathered. Oh, my God. Right, okay. right, yeah, 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 yeah. right, right, yeah. right. So, right. So understanding that there's all in that, in, that, in just that idea, there's white history right right black history uh-huh. and woman's history how do you separate those things right right <laughs> right they're coexisting yeah how do you separate them that's that's a great example 
Yeah. 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 So, so to Well, se- you separate him by never talking about the fact that he seems. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like, right. That's where he gets to be the white, the white history part. Right. Yeah. Where you don't talk about how those things intersect. No, we don't want to talk about that. We, we'll make it a side. We'll make it. We'll, pretend- we'll make it a side thing and then p- call it black history. Right. Right. Oh, int- uh, well, that's screwed. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> get a different story. Right. You know? Well, understand that people are three-dimensional, right? Understand that he did this and that, right? Right. right. People are flawed. Right. I don't know why we're not allowed to have flaws. I don't know. I don't either. know why, you know, you know, you're, you can be Martin Luther King and then somebody says that you're mean to your wife or something. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. And it's like. And it's also, it's not the same thing as being a hypocrite, right? Like Thomas Jefferson was an actual hypocrite. All uh-huh. men are created equal, he writes, as right. he has slaves. As far as I know, Martin Luther King never said anything about adultery. <laughs> right, right, right. He wasn't doing that. There's also something else, I think, that you have to consider, especially when you're talking about Martin. Although Malcolm was different. Martin always expected to die. Mm-hmm. He always expected to die. Hmm. He didn't. I mean, the mountaintop speech is a really good example. I mean, I get there with you. Right. I've seen the promised land. I mean, I get there with you. Right. Is I'd like to about, live a long time. About, yeah. I'd like to live a long time. Longevity has its place, but I'm not worried about that now. That's what he said. Okay, okay. Right? That was very shortly before he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. So he always expected to die. He would pay the ultimate price. He always expected yeah. that. And and you might, if you expect to die, try to get a little bit of pleasure in some way. I mean, he really yeah, expected yeah, to die, yeah. right? So there's some psychology at work there that you yeah. have to consider. Maybe he would have maybe well, he would have done it anyway. But he totally expect. You know when they he was 39 when he died. Mm-hmm. And when they examined him, they said he had the heart of like a 60-year-old man. Oh, okay. Is this, this is where it comes back. You've mentioned that being black can kill you. Yes. Is, is this that part of that? Like, yeah, it can kill you. It can you. affect your health. It, it does affect your health, yeah. The stress. It, it, yeah, the stress of it does. There's a, I can't remember the exact, there are people who talk about it, but there's a, you're always on high alert. Oh, it's a fighter. Like, yeah, you're yeah. squeezing your system so hard. Yeah, you're always on high alert, right? You have to be vigilant, right? Because right. I'm in this neighborhood taking pictures and right. somebody's going to think I'm casing a joint. So I have to make, I have to do all these things to make sure they know I'm okay. I'm one of the, you know, good ones in quotes. Right. Right. right? You know what I mean? I'm not going to bother you. That takes its toll. Making sure you don't um, misspeak. People hear it differently mm-hmm. when you misspeak, when you mm-hmm. mispronounce a word or... Um, and they have studies that back that up, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that black kids don't get the same amount of pain meds, right? As, right. Right, because they people think they feel less pain. They just did a study. Medical right. students still think that black people feel less pain. Um, so, so you're always aware that even even if people aren't aware of these things, that they're doing these things or thinking these things, you still have to deal with them, mm-hmm. whether they think about them or not, mm-hmm. right? If you have a kid who's in pain and you know that that's a thing, the doctor may not know it's a thing, but you have to deal with it just the same, right? right? And the whole, your whole life is like that. Um, and I think it's um, what I've noticed in my life, and I, I mentioned this to my family once and they, they all agreed. There's this idea of the, the bad racist, right? Mm-hmm. The Klansmen, or the right? There's the the Nazi, right? You know, right now it's it's Trump embodies this person, right? Okay. He's the bad one. He's easy to hate, 
but there are all kinds of colors. There's all kinds of things that happen before you get to that place. Okay. Right? There are the people who think like Trump who would never say it. Right? Okay. They exist. There are the people who think like Trump but don't know it. Right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then there's all varying degrees of, of that. And so you start to know uh, all the nuances, all the colors of the rainbow of racism and how it works. Right? So you go, that person's racist, but they don't know it. And you can almost forgive it sometimes. Right. You know what I mean? They don't really understand that this is the reaction they're having. But you still have to deal with it then. And so, um, for instance, they did a test where they interviewed people or they hooked people up to MRIs. And people who were nice liberal white people who didn't, uh, who were not overtly racist. And they gave them a test. And it was about overt racism. Okay. And they passed that test. So according to the overt racism, they were not racist. But then what they did is they hooked them up and then showed them an image of a black man's face. They did it so quickly that you couldn't even register that you'd seen a face. Okay. And the fear parts of their brain lit up. Oh. The fear parts of their... Now that's racism you can't hide. Because I mean like... Because it's in your your brain. Yeah, because it's, it's bypassing the part... I mean, it, you don't even know right. what's happening. You're having a physiological response to something that you didn't even know you saw. Right. So it can show the baked-in racism. Right. But nobody wants to be that person. Nobody wants to admit that. But, you know, I saw this happen. I said, oh, this is where this happens. I was walking down the street the other day, and, you know, I become more and more of a, of a problem in this neighborhood as right. it gets more gentrified. And there was a woman, a white woman, and she had her daughter who must have been, I don't know, four or something. And they were mm-hmm. walking down the street. And the, the daughter was just like, you know, any kid, like, hey, it's a stranger. How you doing? Kind of hello, right. you know, wave at you kind of thing. And so uh, so I said hi or whatever kind of to her. And her mom gripped her hand. We're just walking down the street. I didn't stop. I was just, her mom gripped her hand very tightly. And you could see it on the girl's face, like, what's going on? Uh-huh. Right? And the mom wouldn't make eye contact with me or anything. And I, I went... This is where this starts, right? right? This girl, now she could say anything to this girl, like later growing up, treat everybody the same way, blah, 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 but she's going to get the message. Now that girl's never gonna remember that incident, but she's just been told by her primary caretaker, right? watch out for him. Right, the message got through without being verbalized. Right. Huh, and you just get it all the time. Yeah. Just soaking in it. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is the part where the white people can't, admit because they don't even know that that happened to them when they were a kid right they don't know that their parents gripped their hands more tightly when they were around black people you can't there's no way to show or prove that but here's what's interesting and this is a guy who i would say he's kind of oblivious to racism he was Uh my mentor when i was a a kid white guy who gave me a shot when i was a kid first film job i ever had we're still friends unbelievably cool dude and he was talking, we were talking about my career and why it hasn't gone, where I expected it to go and blah, blah, blah. And he's kind of surprised by it. We start talking about racism and he's open to hearing these things. And he goes, ah, oh, that's too bad. And this and that. And I said, well, you know, people get it. They get taught it by their parents and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, I don't remember ever being taught that stuff by my parents. He goes, I don't, I don't remember that at all. And then he thought about it and he goes, well, I do remember my dad taking me to the black part of town. And we'd drive around and he'd make fun of black people and he called it nigger town and blah, blah, blah. But he goes, but I don't remember. It's like, so you can be that blatant and go, I don't remember getting that information. Right. Any subtler thing would completely disappear. Right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He would drive huh. his kids 
to what he called nigger town. But other than that. Other than that, I don't remember getting any. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is amazing, but I'm not surprised at all because very few white people ever admit to anything. <laughs> white people never admit to racism. Everything on Facebook is like how not racist everybody is. Yeah. And if, if, you, admit, if you admit like, hey, I, I was brought up in a racist society. I was also brought up in a sexist society. Right. Guess what? I'm a sexist. Right. You know? The, yeah, it's a strange thing um, because there's no, there's no measurement. There, if you just look at the evidence, there's plenty of evidence to support the idea that racism exists. There's plenty. Yeah, and, and when I say I'm a sexist, I mean it in, the, in no, that underneath I, the, I in know the, what you mean. In the lizard brain. I know exactly what you mean. Part of myself. I know exactly. Oh, a female pilot. You know, I don't know, just that. No, just, yeah. I think twice about a female dent. I mean, I hate even admitting it. Right. But, but that's what you learn. My lizard brain is there. Right. And people don't cop to that. Yeah. Because they think. Which uh, is very invalidating it to, is. to black people. It is. That white people will never admit their lizard brain part. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's actually, it's a problem. It, the problem is not the, the, again, the conditioning is not the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course you were conditioned to think that. Mm-hmm. Of course you were. Mm-hmm. You know, and black people will admit to themselves, sometimes reluctantly, sometimes they'll embrace it. They go, well, we got the same information, mm-hmm. right? Because we internalize a lot of that stuff too. Yeah. Right? So we got the same information. So, but we'll cop to it. There are books about it and people give talks on it. We'll yeah. cop to it. And we have what they call internalized homophobia. Right. Gay people. Right. So there's. Right. It's out. It's there. Right. You, you grew up in the same yeah. environment. So why wouldn't you have it? Right. Yeah. And so, but but I hardly ever hear, it's because um, Robin D'Angelo, who's a white anti-racist who speaks on uh, whiteness studies, she's a, and mm-hmm. it's all about what it means to be white. It's a new, sort of newish study, because people don't think about it. People who are white don't think about what it means to be white. And so that's what she talks about. And one of the things she talks about is post and pre-civil rights mm-hmm. and how racism morphed. And pre-civil rights you could say just about anything you wanted to say, mm-hmm. right? You could be Archie Punker and it was cool, right? Uh-huh. You could do yeah. that. Nobody cared. Post-civil rights, it became about um, that the racists were bad people. And once you'd say racists are bad people, nobody likes to think of themselves as a bad person. Therefore, there's no racism, right? right. And I, I kept trying to figure out like when I would give pretty solid examples of pretty blatant racist things that have happened to me mm-hmm. how the majority of white people i would talk to would dismiss it well maybe it was this and maybe it was that it was they may be me to death but it's it's never maybe it was racism it's maybe it was a thousand other things maybe right. it was sunspots or maybe it was like it's always maybe it's something else and i was i couldn't figure out why that was why it's like you believe me when i talk about anything else but this i i don't know about right, right. and i'm like oh you're not defending that other person. You're defending yourself. Oh, okay, that's yeah, what, yeah. Right? You're that's, def- I you're, mean, that's astute. You're defending yourself, right? Because yeah. you think that you've been accused of being racist when you weren't racist. Okay, right. right? Like they're filing through like, oh, I've done that before. Right, or, yeah. or you know, I, 
I don't want to be racist. I know I'm not racist. Mm -hmm. And I've been accused. It's like, mm, you maybe, it's like just because you don't know you're racist doesn't mean I don't know you. You know what I mean? Right. You know, it's a weird thing. And I'm not saying, it's. It's like how I feel about being the demographic for Portlandia. Right. I'm 100% the demographic for, for that show. Right. At, and watching that Kamal Bell piece, it just really made me cringe. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's funny because, um, uh, yeah, I can't really, I, I've watched it. Right. But I go, there's something missing from this show. Right? Because I, you know, I try to get a cab. First of all, I cannot get, I've never uh, hailed a cab ever in my life. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm 51 years old. I've never successfully hailed a cab no matter what city I'm in. But Portland seemed even worse. And I remember I called a cab. I was with two black friends. We were at a comic book thing back when I was writing more comics. And and uh, we called a cab to go to a party or something. And the guy pulled over and he saw that there were three black guys and he rolled his eyes like, oh my, I had no idea. Like, like right. we had called him so he pulled over, but he, you could tell he just didn't want to. Um, and that's not in Portlandia. Right. Right? Right, yeah. That's it doesn't not it. address that. It does. That's not what that show is about. Right. Yeah. It addresses all these other things, but it right. doesn't address the obliviousness. It's so oblivious that in a show all about Portland, right, right, it doesn't address this thing that almost every black person I know who spent any time in Portland finds to be a glaring characteristic of the city. Huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I remember I was, um, and this ties into both things, to dyslexia and to racism actually um i never liked that show um breaking bad and i remember one guy said to me well you're by yourself there and i was just like yeah that doesn't mean anything to me right standing alone and that's partly dyslexia i think where it's like well i'm often by myself right so it doesn't make me think i'm wrong right <laughs> right right you have to come with an argument not a you know what i mean right R right Oh, I feel different than everybody. I must be wrong. Yeah. Like, that, why would you question that? Why would you think that you were wrong just because you weren't with the majority? Yeah, that doesn't, make, that doesn't make any sense to me. Right. But I, I had a friend. I think we're still friends. I don't know. I really don't know. I had a friend who um, I was talking about Breaking Bad and I was saying I didn't like the show. And there are lots of reasons I don't like the show. Um, I know everybody thinks it's well written. Okay. But... but but there are lots of reasons I don't like it. And one uh -huh. of the reasons is it's sort of a weird slap in the face. They don't mean it to be racialized, but it is racialized. Okay. And we were talking about this. We were in Oakland and we were at this kind of nice restaurant in Oakland, but outside it's Oakland. So outside there's sort of squalor and there's black people and, you know, right. who are poor. And, and uh, so we're talking. I'm with uh, three white friends. This one guy's like, oh, man, no, how can you? This is talking about somebody getting mad at me, right? Oh, okay. And I, and I started talking about what I didn't like about the show. And, uh, but then I said, but, and I know you're not thinking about this, but there's a racial component. Isn't that racist sort of non-existent? I go, if you, if you imagine, if you will, that this was not Walter White, mm -hmm. who's a white guy, but this was Walter Black, and he was a black guy. Okay. And he was selling drugs. He was a high school teacher. Right. right. Selling yeah. drugs. Um, would America view that guy the same way? Would they can't keep, you know, the hats that 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 character wore? Yeah. They can't keep them in stock at the hats. I wear hats. They're oh. like, we can't keep those hats in stock. Like they sell out. People wear T-shirts with that picture on it. Right. Imagine black youth, black kids wearing a drug dealer 
on their shirts. Right. Right. Imagine that like America would react very differently. That mm-hmm. shows terrible. Blah, blah, blah. It's teaching that. It's teaching this. Anyway, um, I said that to this friend of mine and he goes, well, he's trying to support his family. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I, fu- I hear all these excuses. Well, he's trying to support his family. Right. And one of the reasons I don't like the show uh-huh. is because in the pilot to the show, he's offered a job that will help pay for his health care. Uh-huh. And he turns that job down. And I, I now I don't believe the show because I'm like, they didn't paint him. And his his brother-in-law is a DEA agent. Okay. He's a high school teacher, right? Uh-huh. You know how far you'd have to push a guy in that position to sell drugs? Pretty far. Uh-huh. And they gave him an out and he didn't take it. Like, don't give him the out, maybe I believe you. Right. But they gave him an out. And I know they're always saying to black people, you can't you just get a job at McDonald's and can't you there's always an right. out, right? Right. There's right. always you're always being berated for not working hard enough no matter how hard you work. Right. Right. And so I go, No, I don't buy this. I don't buy this because he had options and he didn't take them. So right. I don't believe anything that happens like it gets better later. It's like, but I don't believe the premise. Right. 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 So anything that happens later doesn't matter. I don't you have buy to the agree prim- on an axiom before you can move on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I don't agree with the premise. But what's interesting is um, I said, you know, so if this was a black guy, people would think differently. And the guy said, well, he, he's trying to support his family. And then he kind of gestured to the outside because he's not just out there selling drugs. Oh, yeah. He couldn't put in his mind that maybe those people have a family to support. Right. And maybe that's why they made that choice. But this right. fictionalized character, he could totally fight for and go. And he didn't understand he was making a racial line between why those people were selling drugs. Right, right. And, and why. So, and we haven't yeah. spoken since. And I thought we were friends. Huh. He said, you're saying all white people, blah, blah, blah. He got really, it got tense. Wow. It got tense. And I didn't say anything about all white people. I just said, how would America view that character if we were black? Differently. Yeah. Differently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. We know that that's true. That's not, you know. Yeah. I mean, this is the the country that will gun down. Because you were criticizing a show that he holds near and dear. Well. And he identifies with that show. So then... He'd and he also didn't see that or think about it, which shows that it shows that you're just a racist by default in our environment. Right. But instead of going, hey, man, that, that sucks because I'm kind of by default a racist because of the environment I grew up in. Right. But you can't say that as a white person without then you're admitting that you're a racist, which means that you're a bad person. Right. Back to that. Right. Instead of so. just being a person who was that little four-year-old girl whose mother gripped her tighter when I walked by. Right. Yeah. Right? And it's, and it's really dismissive of your, your entire experience. But people often have no... It's like, it's a very strange thing. It's like, well, let's see. I've been black my entire life. Right. And you've never been black. You believe that I am intelligent and, and, you know, I make, I'm the more, the most of the money I make Mm -hmm. is because I'm good at observing things. Right. Right. I'm a good observer. Right. Of certain things. So people believe me, pay money to hear what I observe. Right. But will dismiss this thing that I observe every day. Right. Easily. It's hard for everybody. Really? Because... I haven't seen that to be true, and we know that's not. We know that's not true. I mean, the I think it was the the uh, Writers Guild did a study that said most screenwriters, most jobs as a screenwriter go to white men in their forties. Mm-hmm. I didn't make that up, right? Right? Yeah. I didn't make it up. Yeah. So that's what they found. Is there some genetic component to screenwriting that makes white guys better at it? I believe not. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's inherently racist. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether anybody who hires those people thinks they're being racist. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any difference. The, the, it's sort of like um, I've worked at places where they have no people of color and they will swear they're not racist and maybe they aren't in any overt way. But I, I fail to see the difference between putting a sign on the door and says, we're not going to hire you and just never hiring you. Right. That's a really good point. I know there's yeah. no difference. You just get to feel better about yourself. <laughs> right. But that's all that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, I know it's getting hot. Yeah, I guess we should. We don't want to be canaries in the coal mine. <laughs> right. In this room. We're like, to, we're so engaged in conversation that we're just going to burn up. Yeah. But, I keep. Uh, I always think of the Midnight Sun episode of Twilight Zone. Oh, at sure. This time of year. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, sure. Thanks for talking to me. I hope you got something you could use. And oh yeah. Well, you cut into probably three shows, probably. <laughs> Actually, I can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Brian. Sure. They'd heard about a country where life might let them win. They paid the fare to America, and there they melted in.